0: Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa cypress Cayman is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Lisa cypress Cayman is a wide Widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and integrated well being. Let's get to it. Here's your host, Lisa Cypers Kamen.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. It comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. We are talking about love, love, love. Delicious love. And what happens to our love in our relationships as time passes? What happens to us when we fall in love? And we're also talking about the meaning and deliciousness of slow love with my first guest, Dr. Helen Helen Fisher, Ph.D., is a biological anthropologist and is a senior research fellow at the Kinsey Institute, member of the Center for Human Evolutionary Studies in the Department of Anthropology, Rutgers University, and chief scientific advisor to the internet dating site Match. Dot com. She has conducted extensive research and written six books on the evolution and future of human sex, love, marriage, gender differences in the brain, and how your personality style shapes who you are and who you love. She is currently using her knowledge of brain chemistry to discuss the neuroscience of business leadership and innovation. And her latest book is entitled Anatomy of Love – a Natural History of Mating, Marriage, and Why We Stray. Welcome, Dr. Fisher. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you, Lisa. And make sure you just call me Helen. I'm good. <laughs> ah,
1: I, that's good. I like that. <laughs> Helen, I'm I'm so happy you're here. You, you've been a guest on our show before, and we, we we've talked in the past about lots of things. But what we're really talking about today is slow love. And I'd love for you to define what that means.
2: Yeah, it means um, getting to know somebody very slowly so that by the time you walk down the aisle, you really know what you want and you know you want to keep what you got, uh, and what came, what what I think that's where we're going right now in um, American culture. In fact, I think even in world culture, what 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 got me to this is you know as you mentioned, I'm chief scientific advisor to Match.com, and annually we do a uh, a study of Americans. It's called Singles in America. We don't um, we don't pull the Match population. We pull the uh, pull the American population, so it's a representative sample uh, based on the United States census. So so it's a very good sort of understanding of really the the pulse of the singles world. And every single year, I ask over 200 questions. And every year, as it turns out, over 50% of Americans have had a one night stand, not uh, not necessarily in the past year, but have had one. Uh, Over 50% have had a friends with benefits, uh, and over 50% had lived with somebody long-term before they married. And I thought to myself, and Americans think anyway, this is reckless, this is crazy, why are people doing this? And it began to occur to me, I think it's caution. I think that these days people are so scared of divorce and the real economic and social and, and uh, financial issues um, involving divorce that we have gotten to the point now where we want to get to know every single thing about a person before we tie the knot, before we wed them. And I call it slow love. And so where everybody thinks all this sleeping around and everything is reckless, and it certainly can be reckless, no question about that, but the bottom line is, I think it's caution. I think it is a, a mechanism for trying to get to know every single thing about a person. So you could almost say fast sex and slow love. And, you know, these <laughs> say sexuality is, is um, you know, I mean, most people know how to not get pregnant. They know how to not get diseases. They don't have to walk the walk of shame. And actually, I'm not advocating it, but you get you get to know a lot about a person between the sheets. And I think it's all part of this process of getting to know somebody. So. I came to realize, okay, well, if so many people are taking a long time before they marry, maybe we're going to see happier marriages because bad marriages, bad relationships can end before they, get, before they go down the aisle. So I did a study with Match of 1,100 married people, not on Match, of course, and I asked a lot of questions, but one of them was, would you remarry the person you're currently married to? And 81% said yes. So I really think, Lisa, we may be going towards a time, it looks like recklessness, all this sex before marriage, all this living together and friends with benefits. I think it's actually caution, and I think we're going to see more happy marriages because bad relationships can end before they marry.
1: I, I hope so. Amen to that. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about the concept of slow love, and I'm thinking about, you know, test driving. And the try before you buy concepts and how yeah. that applies to us as we learn how to be in relationship. I mean, it's not just that, you know, we're testing or, or, or being in these relationships outside of matrimony because it's convenient, but it's also about how we learn how to be in them.
2: Absolutely. And if you can't, you're just not compatible with somebody, and you don't know in the early stages whether you're really compatible because, you know, I put people in brain scanners. I studied the brain circuitry of romantic love, and, and, you know, activity in various decision making regions of the brain begins to go down. In other words, you can overlook just about anything when you're madly in love with somebody. But if you've lived with them or gone out with them for a few years, you begin to understand how they handle their family, how they handle problems at work, how they deal with their friends what they do in their spare time uh, whether they can be patient and, and learn something in bed with you or, uh what kind of converse are they interested in you or do, you know etcetera etcetera these things take time to get to know somebody you know it's so interesting because in the past you know uh marriage used to be the beginning of a relationship now it really is the finale now it's the end now you know what you've got and you want to keep it
1: yeah uh, it, I, I, i'm thinking about a brain intoxicated by love. And I think something that you mentioned in a TED talk you did many years ago, that if you compare the brain scans of somebody newly in love and somebody on cocaine, they look the same.
2: Uh, Some basic parts look the same. Some cognitive regions are going to look different. In other words, when you're thinking about your sweetheart, you might be thinking about, you know, yesterday when you took a walk and had ice cream. Whereas if you are, you know, a cocaine addict, you're going to be thinking about getting your next drug. But the brain regions linked with craving, obsession, focus, and motivation. They are the same. They're both drives. I think, actually, I think they're both addictions. I I mean, we know cocaine can be an an addiction, but... Uh, I think romantic love can be a very positive addiction, actually, uh, or a, certainly a very negative one when things don't work out, very negative people. You know, people don't kill themselves when they can't get any cocaine. They kill themselves when they can't get their sweetheart to love them. You know, the the crimes of passion in the, in, uh, are enormous uh, when it comes to romantic love. So, yes, no question about your question that uh, brain regions linked with addiction – Craving, obsession, focus, and motivation, energy, became act, become active when you take any, a lot of drugs and, of course, when you're in love.
1: The, 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 the newness of being in love. And once we settle down and settle into our relationships, which is the case in point for the slow love model, we begin to think more rationally about the relationship. Is this somebody that I can connect with and be with for the long haul? That doesn't Absolutely. happen when you're newly in love. You're just you're out of control on dopamine and oxytocin and vasopressin and all those other little
2: <laughs> wonderful are, drugs. You're educated. You are educated. Absolutely. Well, you know, uh, uh, no question about it. I mean, we all do incredibly stupid things when you're madly in love with somebody. As a matter of fact, brain regions linked with anxiety become quite active when you've just fallen madly in love. You know, you think, say, am I too fat? Am I too thin? What did I say that for? How come he didn't call? You know, you're anxious. Um, but you're also possessed. You know, it's very interesting. The basic brain region linked with feelings of intense romantic love is way at the base of the brain. I mean, and it lies right next to brain regions for hunger and thirst so romantic love is a basic drive that evolved millions of years ago to enable us to focus our mating energy on just one individual and start the mating process so you know uh, food and and water keep you alive today romantic love drives your day, dna into tomorrow so there, <laughs> these are drives basic profound powerful drives it, you know it's very hard to control romantic love uh, uh you know stendhal once said love is like a fever It comes and goes quite independently of the will, and indeed it does.
1: Oh, my. We're going to need to take a break, and when we come back, I want to touch upon the primitive parts of... Love and romance, and and your book, your newest book, um, "Anatomy of Love: A Natural History of Mating, Marriage, and Why We Stray," talks about this um, in detail. And I was reading uh, part of that book this morning, in fact, quite early, and I was enchanted. By some of the things that you share about s- the sexy women and the new prehistoric man, about how men, <clears throat> excuse me, are more apt to fall in love faster and juicy tidbits like this. But let's go to a break, and when we return. We will carry on the conversation with Helen Fisher, who is a biological anthropologist, as well as the author of several books, including her newest, Anatomy of Love, A Natural History of Mating, Marriage, and Why We Stray. And to connect with Helen Fisher, please do so at her website at www.HelenFisher.com. And on Twitter, that hashtag is at Dr. Helen Fisher. Here come those tunes. We'll be right back. And that's a promise.
3: We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on TogiNet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break.
4: Happiness is an inside job.
0: Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her 1st ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.HarvestingHappinessTalkRadio.com.
3: Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on TogiNet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on TogiNet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen.
1: Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because it's kind, it's free, it's legal, it's available 24-7, and we are talking about the concept of slow love with Helen Fisher, who is a biological anthropologist and the author of several books, including... Anatomy of Love, A Natural History of Mating, Marriage, and Why We Stray. Its second edition is now out, and I'm talking with Helen, and we're talking about the prehistoric mind and man and how it relates to love. Helen, take it away.
2: Well, you know, in that last chapter of Anatomy of Love, I talk about a whole lot of new trends or things that I've noticed from collecting an awful lot of data. And as it turns out, men fall in love faster than women do. Now, that has been known by psychologists, but I've got a lot of of, of really mathematical data to show it. Because they're so visual, uh, men not only fall in love faster, they fall in love more often. Uh, when they do fall in love with somebody, um, they want to introduce that person to friends and family sooner. Um, they want to move in sooner. Uh, men have more intimate conversations with their wives than men, women do with their husbands because, uh, because women have their real intimate conversations with their girlfriends. And, um, it's a downer, but the men uh, are two and a half times more likely to kill themselves when a relationship is over. So it's simply not true that, um, men don't love, uh, and that men don't want to commit. They commit all the time. Uh, and they'll stay in a marriage a very long time once they've made that commitment. So I think we, I, you know, we have spent 50 years talking about uh, uh, getting to know who what a woman is. It's time, I think, for us to get to know who men are. We've got a lot of misconceptions about men.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, I think about you know, the genders, and I I work with mostly men on a daily basis in addiction and trauma recovery, so there are more young men in those facilities than there are young women. And I'm wondering what that is about. Are they more sensitive and therefore more prone?
2: You know, um, more men die at every age. Uh, More men are born for every 100 uh, uh, women, uh, babies, female babies that are born there's uh, 105 male babies that are born so there's more male babies than female babies right coming out of the womb but all through the life course men uh, men um, uh, uh die more than women do and uh you know 90 percent of people who die at work are men because men take the dangerous jobs and women take the boring jobs uh uh so um and it's one thing was interesting, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday about it. It's data that I stumbled on some time ago. Today, these men say, um, and I think I do have it in that last chapter of Anatomy of Love, um, men today say, well, I don't make as much money as my father does, but I spend much more time with my children than my father does. And I do see that trend. I, you know, I'm older, and my father was very busy making money, going to the office, coming home, and, and doing his things. And new fathers these days are, you know, in the park playing with their small children and swinging them on swings and taking them to the children's opera and theater and puppet shows and this and that. That did not ha- I happened to have adored my father, but it was a different time. And along with the evolution of the double income marriage, boy, that's the biggest trend we are seeing in the world today is women piling into the job market in cultures around the world. In fact, that's changing love more than... Um, than technology is. Everybody thinks technology is changing love. It's changing how we court. It's changing how we meet people, but it's not changing that basic brain circuitry for romance. So anyway, as women pile into the job market, um, you're seeing the rise of the double-income family. Thank God. and Because that's the way it was for millions <laughs> of years for online you know, grasslands, Africa. And along with that, women's roles are changing and men's roles are changing and men are having expanded roles as women
1: have. You know, let's talk a little bit about going back, you know, hundreds if not thousands of years to hunter-gatherer societies and the equality that existed in those environments that were eclipsed in the Industrial Revolution and beyond because it did change women's roles in society.
2: Exactly right. And uh, I mean, for millions of years, we, we traveled in these little hunting and gathering groups. Women commuted to work in the morning to gather their fruits and vegetables. They came home with 60 to 80 percent of the evening meal. The double income family was the rule. And women were regarded as just as economically and socially and sexually powerful as men. Then we began to settle down on the farm about 10,000 years ago, and that really changed the relationship. Men's roles began to, they you know, they were the ones that to move the rocks, plow the, uh, you know, cut down the trees, plow the land, and bring the, the produce off to local, mar- local markets and come home with the equivalent of money. And you see in agrarian societies around the world a beginning of a shift. Uh, to patriarchy, to men becoming more powerful economically than women, um, and, and but then with the beginning of the industrial revolution, both men and women began to leave the farm for factory work. the after 1920 actually was the real. Uh, change in the business community. More and more women were being pulled into the modern business world to be stenographers and typists, etc., and we began to move forward to the kinds of partnerships that we had for millions of years, this double-income family. So I, I, I'm i very positive about that. I think it enables society to, to enjoy the talents of women, for heaven's sakes, and, and it enables men to expand their roles
1: and then you, in your book you say something very interesting about i think it was the, in the 50s when um it was all about being a good little housewife the women were put back in the home yeah. and out of the workplace except in the boring jobs as you mentioned yeah. and what what that did to society and our relationships and breeding a generation or two perhaps of very unhappy women in their partnerships
2: yeah it's so interesting, and you know divorce was very low and I just read something a couple of weeks ago of a very fine um sociologist <clears throat> that um domestic violence was um thirty percent higher in the nineteen fifties than it is today, and it's probably because uh number one people couldn't uh 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 divorce uh, and if women did a woman did walk out on a on a marriage she didn't have any job she didn't have the enough education to support her children uh uh et, et cetera and, and these days bad relationships can end giving room for both men and women to make the kinds of partnerships that they that they really want. Now, I'm not suggesting that everybody divorces people who have very good marriages. You know, one thing that's interesting, Lisa, I really like to say this We put a group of uh, 15 people who were in love long-term. They were all married an average of 21 years. They were all in their 50s and 60s, and every one of them said to us in the lab that they were madly in love with their husband or wife, not just loving, but in love. And we have stumbled on what the brain says about happiness, and I know your program is all about that. Psychologists are going to tell you a million things, to make, to do, to keep a happy relationship. They're probably all correct, but this is what the brain says. So among these people in the long-term happy relationship, and also we did something like this in in China as well, so we got two pieces of data, that three brain regions become active in long-term happy partnerships. A brain region linked with empathy, a brain region linked with controlling your own emotions, and a brain region linked with what we call positive illusions, the ability to overlook what you don't like about somebody and focus on what you do uh, or what you do like about them. So we know that it is possible now we 've proven it in the brain to remain in love with somebody long term, got to pick the right person <laughs> for openers. <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> and, that does know, help <laughs> and, and, yeah, and but to keep it going there's a lot of things to keep it going but uh, among them empathy controlling your own emotions and overlooking the negative and focusing on the positive
1: i think what you just said that the third one is the the secret sauce that is missing From a lot of the discussions about what can keep us in love with our mates, you know, overlooking, um, it doesn't mean that you're sweeping it under the rug and you don't know that it's there. It's basically making a, a, a qualitative and a quantitative assessment that this person is worth having in our lives above and beyond the frailties or the weaknesses in this other area
2: exactly and let me give you an example just from my own personal life for 18 years i went out with a with a, with a man <clears throat> we broke up a couple years ago we're very good friends i went out with him last night uh, uh but we're just good friends these days anyway he's very slow he walks slowly he talks slowly he he he's he's very slow but when we go to a museum he will look at a picture very carefully and then we go out for dinner, and we have this wonderful conversation about what we saw, what it means. We'll go to the movies or to the theater or even to the opera. And, uh, and he, you know, he absorbs it slowly, but he absorbs it deeply. And so, you know, all these times when he's so slow, oh, Lord. And I say to myself, <laughs> Helen, you know... He's slow now walking down the street, but just, you know, he's read me uh, almost all of Shakespeare. He's got that kind of patience, and so I would say to myself, literally, okay, he's slow now. It's going to take us an hour walking to this this place in the rain, but um, when we get here, he will be so interesting in in he's absorbed about the museum or the movie or whatever so yeah you've got to practice it you've got to say you know is it worth my getting mad because he eats too fast it's not worth it
1: no it's not worth it at the end of the day if what we're seeking is somebody to snuggle with and put our heads down on the pillow together and drift off to sleep you know if, if you know as, as long as we possibly can together no it's not what we're we, that's not what we're after is pointing out the bad we want yeah. to uh, you know activate the amp- empathy gland is what i like to call it and i don't that's think there's well really done. an empathy gland but metaphorically speaking
2: uh, well no it's accurate i mean uh, i mean we've proven it in the brain the brain regions for empathy become more active
1: yeah yeah we are so we are once it. again almost out of time which just means you'll have to come back again because i adore Speaking with you, Helen Fisher. I love it.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a good topic. (laughs) kid.
1: Yeah, it's a a great topic. And I mean, I I want you to come back and talk again about what antidepressants are doing to us and our love lives. But that's like we could spend hours on that because I know you have a lot to say about that. But I want to send our listeners over to a different website that is really a learning site for your work. It's theanatomyoflove.com. Once again, more about Helen Fisher's work is at um, theanatomyoflove.com. The second edition of her book, Anatomy of Love, A Natural History of Mating Marriage and Why We Stray is once again coming out. And I can't wait to read the whole book. I've had just uh, tidbits that have delighted me uh, in my inbox. And once again, to connect with Dr. Helen Fisher on Twitter, that handle is at Dr. Helen fisher helen thank you again from the fullness of my heart and with lots of love to you
2: thank you kid and happy autumn yes
1: happy autumn and guess what we're going to a break and we're coming back and continuing more of the discussion on love 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 here come the tunes
3: we know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break.
0: Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress Cayman has made her first ebook: "Got Happiness Now: Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life," available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com.
4: Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes.
3: Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen.
1: Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. We are carrying on the discussion about love. And indeed, love is what makes the world go round. And it is what really inspires me in the work that I get to do every day. And I know with my guests as well. My next guest is Dr. Cheryl Frazier. She is a Fulbright Fellowship award winning psychologist and sex therapist who combines academic credibility, humor, and straight talk to provide expertise for all manner of modern media. As a columnist for Mindful and Best Health magazine, she explores love, sex, relationships, meditation, and the human experience. Dr. Frazier has created the Become Passion Home Study Series and the Awakened Lover Weekend Intensive Boot Camp for Couples. She has a private practice in sex and couples therapy. And in addition, Cheryl's approach to life and to helping others is based in her practice of meditation and Buddhism, which she has studied for more than 25 years. She's working on a book about mindful sexuality, and I can't wait to talk with her. Welcome, Dr. Cheryl Frazier. Oh, thanks so
5: much, Lisa. It's great to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. Let's talk about what
1: mindful loving is and mindful sexuality.
5: Yeah, uh, mindful has become such a buzzword now. I think it's almost lost some meaning. So I just want to remind us all that what it actually means is to be really really present and really experiencing what's really happening that may sound obvious but it's not at all usually we're uh, a bit of ahead of ourselves or behind ourselves I mean imagine playing with your niece or something you're playing whatever you're playing with her uh, but are you really there are you really playing with your niece or are you off thinking of other things at the same time now in our love relationships and our sexuality are we really there are we really experiencing this kiss maybe the way we did when we were 15 15 or 16, you know, making out for three hours where we weren't going to go below the chin for whatever good reasons that was. And all of our attention and all of our sensuality and all of our pleasure was deeply focused and concentrated on our lips and our tongues and that person. That's a little hint of how we used to maybe be mindfully sensual and how many, many of us have, have, have forgotten that. And we kind of go through the motions in our love life, our romantic life, and in our sexuality life.
1: You you make a very good point in that for many of us who have been in relationships for many years, long periods of time, and we go through the day-to-day and we are all challenged with stresses and the trials and tribulations of raising children, of of earning a living, of keeping a home, of uh, being connected to our families, we easily can tend to lose that Mindful approach to our love and our love making.
5: Yes, and it's a matter of can we actually slow down and show up? And the beautiful thing there is, if I'm incredibly present in in a friendship conversation, and certainly in a conversation or or touching or engaging in sensuality with a lover. It is very fresh, it's very new, and it's very, very intense. So we can, with applying mindfulness and approach to really being present and calming our mind down and brightening our senses up, we can uh, experience whatever's happening much more deeply with our five senses, you know, much more alight. So in essence, I often share with people that it's a bit like being able to fall in love over and over and over again with the same person.
1: And and how do we do that? What are some strategies that we can put into play that help us view our partners and our lovers as um, from that new, fresh perspective or, or lens on a more regular basis?
5: Well, some of them may sound a bit funny, but I challenge people to try them out anyway. Um, one thing is to ask really big, open-ended questions. Go out for dinner or tea or whatever and ask each other big questions like, you know, if you won $3 million today, what would you really, really want to do with it? Or if you had a year to live and you knew you were going to live entirely healthy until 364 days from now, what would be your top priorities? Or even if you were going to come back in time as a historical figure and live your life, what would you do? Now those may sound a little bit silly, but what they do is they actually let you learn something new about your partner. And you may have been sleeping next to that person for 26 years. And uh, you don't know them very much at all. No, I was just going to add, what, this is a great idea. Keep going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and this other one is really silly, but a whole heck of a lot of fun. And I like to ask people when I teach seminars or whatever, you know, how many people in here have ever had a dog? And, you know, a lot of hands go up. And how many people have ever known a dog? <laughs> and all the hands go up. And I say, okay, imagine this. Uh, You're sitting down, you know, reading a magazine or whatever, and your sweetheart comes home at the end of the day and you hear their keys in the door and they come in the door. How do you greet them? And people kind of, you know, think about that. Well, you know, part two, you're a dog and you hear your owner's keys in the door, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) My tail is wagging (laughs)
5: right now. (laughs) absolute hysteria you know Lisa's home oh my lord my world has lit up everything is perfect um and I I actually get people to stand up and it is my favorite part of giving a talk anywhere is I get everybody to stand up and I play the song who let the dogs out and they all have to act like a dog whose owner has just walked in the room and everybody's laughing and goofy and and the guy that won the prize actually took his shoe off put it in his mouth and ran around the room so he got he got an extra prize for enthusiasm <laughs> well done fella Um, But then, of course, I make a pretty simple point, which is how do you actually greet your spouse when they walk in the door, right? Um, Often it's a grunt or a, hey, babe, you know, but do you actually get up and go to the door? Do you actually go give them an embrace? And I do say, you know, now and then rock their world, jump up and pretend you're a Labrador retriever, you know, get some playfulness back because it's a way of being mindful. It's a way of, in a way, recreating that thrill you felt when you were dating and you heard them knock at the door. You know, and you got a thrill in your body. You're like, oh, man, they're here. And you went to the door, you beamed a smile at them, and so on, right?
1: Oh, the dopamine surge was happening, you know, when you hear the keys
5: go in the lock. You know, it's like here here, here comes pleasure and I want it. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, and the only thing that's changed is repetition and habit pattern. And that we have moved away from from treating that moment as fresh, treating that moment as new, which in its essence, in practice, is what mindfulness is really about. This moment is new. This is the only breath we've ever had of this particular breath right now. This is the only touch, the only kiss, the only conversation about paying our mortgage that we've ever had in this present moment. And can we make it fresh and interesting? This is very
1: powerful. Very um, simple in theory and a little bit more challenging for many to practice and and that's because it's 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 new it's a little bit uncomfortable to say but 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 I I've got real world problems there are things going on out there and what i hear you suggesting is that we just quiet that that we make an agreement with ourselves to temper that and place our attention on the only thing we know for sure right now
5: that's a really lovely way to say it. Actually, that idea of making an agreement with yourself—I appreciate you wording it that way. Uh, that leads to something that helps me help couples <clears throat> deal with the number one sexuality complaint in relationship. After a while, which is one person's in the mood and the other one isn't—you uh, know, number one, the most simple and 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 deep uh, problem people have—and it's very similar to what you know I have just been talking about in terms of how to approach that i'm not in the mood problem if partner one is really busy they're making lunch and they're about to phone their kid's teacher to find out about a field trip or something regular stuff as you said real real life and partner comes up in an amorous mood and kind of gives an embrace from behind and kisses you on the back of the neck and says hey you know you want to get frisky very often the first partner says no i'm not in the mood and everything comes to a screeching halt there along with you know concomitant problems like rejection and feeling pressured and all that stuff But it's because the person isn't able in that moment to make an agreement with yourself, to use your language, to say, well, right now I'm not turned on at all. I'm making lunch and thinking about the kid's teacher. But can I make an agreement with myself to pause and say, 'Uh, not right now, babe, but give me a few minutes? And then work with your own mind, with mindfulness, and to finish making lunch. And if you're stressed and you're in your head and you're just not in your body, you're not feeling at all connected to your sensuality, you can take a little bit of time to transition. Maybe even go have a bath or a shower or make a date for later uh, that evening. But the difference is uh, I teach people to, quote, never say I'm not in the mood ever again. Instead, say, not right now, check with me in a bit. And it's a very different dynamic. And it allows us to get our head in the game. And often, if people will get their head in the game, or frankly, if I could be a little bit more explicit, ask their partner to turn them on. Say, well, I'm not really in the mood, but go for it. Get to work. See what you can do to get my body <laughs> woken up. You know, that,
1: That's my favorite answer. I'm
5: not, answer. I'm, not, I'm not really open for business, but, you know, try me. See <laughs> <laughs> what you can do, baby. See what you can do. And exactly. That- works in either direction in any, you know, (laughs) heterosexual, bisexual, gay relationship doesn't matter. It's, you know, well, I'm not really there, but see what you can do. Can you start the engines? Right. So the head may still be worrying and thinking and absorbed in in minutiae, But if the partner's willing, the friskier partner in that moment is willing to say, okay, I'll put a little effort in here, often the body will relax, start to become aroused, the mind can calm down and get in the game. And this is a huge, huge problem that can be resolved with a little bit of dedication and a willingness to take this different approach.
1: You know, and talk about you know these long-term relationships that many of us have, and how um, interests may not be parallel at all times. I think you hit on something really important about that that art of seduction.
5: Yes, very much so. And again, what does it take to uh, invest in the art of seduction? We do it naturally when we're dating. It takes mindfulness, it takes paying attention, thinking about when I can see you this week, what I'm going to do to impress you, what I'm going to wear, you know, all that stuff we did when we did. We know how to do this, is the point. We know how to do it. We know how to do it. It's embedded. We're going to need to take
1: a break. And when we come back, I want to talk more about love, sexuality, the art of seduction, mindful loving. To learn more about Dr. Cheryl Frazier, please visit her website, www.drcherylfrazier.com. On Facebook, that page is Dr. Cheryl Fraser with a hyphen between each word. And on Twitter, the handle is at Dr. Cheryl Frazier. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. And that is a promise.
3: We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on TogiNet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break.
4: Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Welcome back to
3: Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen.
1: Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. We are talking about love. Love is in the air. And my guest is Dr. Cheryl Frazier. She is a Fulbright Fellowship Award-winning psychologist and sex therapist who combines academic credibility, humor, and we're talking about mindful loving and mindful sexuality, how we put our heart and soul into the way we show up for life in our relationships, at least the ones that matter. So, Cheryl, prior to the break, we were talking about the art of seduction and how it is lost in the day-to-day of our lives.
5: Yes. And I think here we can talk about seduction uh, outside of the bedroom and then within the bedroom really briefly, which is outside of the bedroom. It's those moments of attention. You know, there's some terrific research. John Gottman's a terrific marriage researcher. And uh, what he finds is one of the seven main things that predict a great long-term relationship is that each partner feels appreciated. It's so simple. That's why I like his work. It's intuitive. And uh, what that means is somehow our partner lets us know that they appreciate Appreciate us on a regular basis, and we let them know that. In whatever currency, in whatever way works for them, it might be a touch, it might be a note, it might be an attaboy, whatever it is. So that's a type of uh, seduction, which is making me feel good through the day that I matter and that you appreciate the little and big things I do for us and for our family, and then I'm making sure you feel the same way. So that attention to detail, that attention to each other, the simple appreciation, basically I call it treating each other like a friend, which we are not that great at doing with our long-term partner. We'll often talk to them in a way we would never speak to the 7-Eleven clerk. We generally wouldn't say, oh, for goodness sakes, hurry up, we gotta go. To, to a stranger in a, in a retail setting, but we'll say that to our sweetheart. That's not appreciative. That's not kind and it's not friendly and it's not seductive. So the little kindnesses through the day really matter outside of the bedroom, through the day on an ongoing basis. Now, people have heard that before and they're like, yeah, yeah, I know that. And I challenge them to say, OK, but are you doing it? You know, there's a lot of things we know. We know we should eat more kale, but are you doing it? Right, <laughs> Get her done. So um, the second thing is inside the bedroom. And here, um, I got to say, the, the, the research is pretty depressing on, uh, you know, in longer term relationships, how long a sexual encounter lasts. And it's, it's roughly seven minutes. And I mean seven minutes from the elbow in the rib cage to the snore. We're talking seven minutes, the whole, whole enchilada. That's really underachieving people. We can do a lot better than that. And oh, what I, yeah. It, 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 but but people don't on average. That's the sad thing. So what I tend to say is, look, I say that the typical North American sex life, it's basically nipple, nipple, crotch, good night. That's it. I mean, it's a routine. We got this thing going down. We do it. It doesn't mean it's bad. It's just typical, unimaginative and has very little seduction in it. So Again, people may have heard this, but I challenge them, are you doing it? When's the last time you kissed the back of your lover's knees? When's the last time you really had a full body exploration? No, not each and every time that you're sexually uh, joyful together, but bringing some time and attention and imagination to the encounters again, the way we did earlier on. Maybe not the first few earlier ons with a new partner, because those are awkward and weird, but when we got our groove going on, yeah. we usually explored a lot more. We tickled their feet, we played around, we just had more imagination and more fun. That's really where the seduction matters. I think the word seduction has that implication. We seduce to get into bed and then you know the work's all done. It's like no 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 no. <laughs> Closing the escrow, I like to recall. Yeah. There you go. I like that. I, I don't like it as a practice, but it's a good phrase to capture, unfortunately. The yes, that yes, yes, yes.
1: You know, and, and the concept of foreplay uh, as being these tiny, random acts of kindness and appreciation. I mean, I, I know with my partner, I can pretty much guarantee him a good time if he makes the bed and empties the dishwasher. You
5: know, and I, know. I it's, like <laughs> it's, it's so silly. <laughs> it sounds so dang unromantic, and people think it, it becomes almost this, this cliche. But it's like, think about it. Those are acts of appreciation that you matter, that you're on his mind, and that he's reliable. In terms of archetypal patterns in a heterosexual relationship, uh, women really respond to men that are reliable because if they didn't come home to the cave with some meat, you and the babies died. So the modern day equivalent of that can be unloading the dishwasher. Like I can count on my men. That that makes them kind of sexy to me. Yeah, exactly. And let's talk about how
1: what we're talking about translates to other uh, other forms of partnership, whether it's a it's a heterosexual or a homosexual relationship. I don't think it matters much, but you may correct me on this. The human heart is the human heart.
5: Yeah, I don't think it matters practically at all. The only place it may play out a tiny bit is our kind of caveman genetics. Around certain archetypal needs in a female psyche and a, and a male psyche. Those would play out in a female-female or male-male relationship in a, just a slightly modified way for those two people. So it, it the heart wants what the heart wants, and all of this applies the same way. It's more that the, the partner in any partnership who's maybe more directive, more uh, ambitious, etc., will need certain things in a deep subconscious level from their partner differently than the partner who's more nurturing, more home-based. It doesn't matter what uh, genitalia goes along with that patterning.
1: Yeah, exactly. The, the, The hardware actually
5: is not where the sexuality is stemming from. No, not at all. It's much more the heart, the mind, that, you know, all of it, the whole, the whole thing. And I don't mean in some over romanticized way. I mean, literally, we've got our physical urge, what I call sexual arousal. We've got our mental, psychological urges and needs, what I call sexual desire. And then we've got our emotional stuff. So you've got head, heart and groin. And this plays out in different ways for each of us. And in a longer term pairing, the trick is to try to keep all of those pretty alive and, and buzzing. So we don't just get a sweet, romantic friendship connection with our lover and a very dull and infrequent sexual life, but that we find a way to enliven that part as well and not have the emotional, psychological sweetness deaden it, which is uh, another very common issue that couples deal with in a longer term mating. That they become just friends without benefits. Yeah, or occasional kind of boring vanilla benefits that are pleasant but not high on the priority and that one or both people are not highly driven to enhance. And I like to help people see that they can recapture that and recreate it using presence, using showing up. And, you know, frankly, if I could be so bold, getting off your butt and doing something about it, you know, Uh, effort in uh, results out like everything else in our life we prioritize and that matters to us. I love what you just said. Efforts in, results out. Love it. Yeah, yeah. It comes easily in the beginning, but that's thanks to a lot of biochemistry and other stuff. And then we got to do a little bit of efforting to make it worthwhile. But we do that in everything else that matters too. Well, when you look
1: at anything that we want to achieve in life, it requires some level of practice or training in order to reach mastery. And being in a relationship and being in a successful um, sexual
5: relationship is the same. Yeah, very much so. I like to teach that with the concept of treating your relationship like a hobby. So we don't have to work on our relationship, which is like one of the most off-putting phrases in the English language to most of us. But the idea is with a hobby, think about what a hobby means. It means we take time for it. We do it because we wish to. We don't have to. We prioritize it, et cetera, et cetera. And we learn. We study a little bit. We consult a pro. We figure out how to do it differently to grow the best roses on the block or whatever. And if we can bring that mentality to our love relationship, we're cultivating it as a hobby, not as a, something we've got to work on. It, yeah. gives us, it gives a different approach and it really can uh, – Really reframe it for people that they start thinking, okay, this week, where are we going to block out time for ourselves romantically, sexually, just to go be together um, and, and make it a fun thing we look forward to instead of something we feel we're neglecting and we feel badly about?
1: I think there's something else that we should point out that happens when we do a hobby, that anything that we're passionate about hobby-wise, we, we find ourselves in that flow state where we lose track of time and space and we're just enraptured by what we're doing. Beautiful. That is, I mean, sexuality at its peak, I think when we're talking about happiness and sexuality with our partner, that is what I think you're, you're, you're getting at.
5: Yeah, that flow state is a beautiful way to describe the state of mindful loving or mindful sexuality where everything else settles away. It it goes into the background and we're really in flow with what's happening now. Laughing over dinner with you, making love with you, walking on the beach with the dogs, but we're there, we're present. Yes. That's another definition for that flow state and it, it captures it really beautifully.
1: Yeah, and there no other space exists in that moment because... There's nowhere else to be.
5: Yes, and nothing matters more than this, which means we fully inhabit it. It's more sparkling. It's more bright. The colors are brighter. And I'm being literal here. When we're more mindful and in touch with the present moment, our senses are brighter. We really taste the food instead of tasting it while we gab about something else. And that in love and sexuality and in paying attention to our beloved profoundly light things up. We are
1: nearly out of time, and I want to give our listeners uh, some information where to reach out and connect with you. You've got several courses and offerings on your website at com, um, and there's a cute little thing on Cheryl's website where you can get Love Bites, and that's B-Y-T-E-S, and, and get uh, updates from her and words of wisdom from her. On um, your programs, you've got The Awakened Lover, Become Passion, you've got The Love School that is something that is is happening about now or will be happening, and your book, right, on mindful sexuality, which is going to be coming out in 2017.
5: Yes, that's the plan. And uh, lots of great stuff debuting in 2017, including an online program. That'll be Love School that couples can do from home, uh, live with me and uh, and really bring this work into their relationship and their lives, because that's what matters is that we actually apply it. I mean, blah, blah, blah. We're giving some great ideas here, but I want people to apply them and really discover for themselves how to fall in love over and over with the same person. Wonderful. Once again, the website is www.drcherylfraser.com. On
1: Facebook, Dr. Cheryl Frazier with a hyphen between the words. And on Twitter, that handle is at Dr. Cheryl Frazier. Thank you for being with us, Cheryl. I want to share a few words before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. This is Elisa Cypress-Kamen thanking you for joining us today. And on behalf of my guests, we wish you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet and KBUU and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. Go out and rock your day.
0: Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new broadcast and continue to harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on iTunes and SoundCloud. To learn more about Lisa's global practice as an applied positive psychology coach specializing in lifestyle management as well as addiction and trauma recovery services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook. Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness.